Okay, I'll explain what's going on. Uh, normally, as you know, we stand and read the Word of God, and we get that from Ezra when they first received the scriptures after years of it being obsolete. And they stood for hours, by the way, and listened to the Word of God being read. I'm not going to do that to you this morning. This will be the first time we got to sit down. But the reason is, is because it's a long section, and we're going to do chapters 8 through 11. So if you're a newcomer, I apologize. Usually we read five or six verses and we're done. We're reading four full chapters, and uh, there's a reason for it, and it'll make sense in the sermon. So to break the monotony so that it's not just my voice and you'll pay attention more, I have four fantastic volunteers. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll read Revelation 8 through 11, and uh, it'll go with Janice for 8, and I believe you're doing 9, Laurel. Cheryl's 10. Okay, and then uh, Randy, you're 11. Okay. So why don't we just listen to the word of God being preached, or read, I should say. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, singing with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth, because the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, 
and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire, of sapphire, and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot, um, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The angel and the scroll and the little scroll I saw another strong angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little scroll, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will no longer be a delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, and saying, Go take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. 
and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, language, languages, and kings. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for forty-two months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Then men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth in every kind of plague as often as they want. <clears throat> now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that came up, comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on earth. But after three and a half days, breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and their survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, the third woe is coming. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord our God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding the servants of the prophets. And your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroyed the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Before we get started, I just want to say that I'm doing something a little uncomfortable today, and I'm breaking my own rules. My own rules have always been to preach verse by verse and to give the details of each verse. But today we're not doing that. We are going, I had them read this whole thing, but I'm not going to preach on the entire section. Instead, what I'm going to do is we're going to um, basically uh, look at the overall message, the overall picture. And because I think if we do that, these four chapters make a lot more sense. 
I think if I was to go verse by verse, it'd be more confusing. So the big picture is what we're going for here today. And like I said, I don't like doing that normally, but I think it's going to be more helpful. I realize that many of you, after I'm done preaching, are actually more confused probably than you are clear. <laughs> and maybe because there's so much detail. And so I'd like to just get the overall view here. But I will say this. If you have specific questions, like, I want to know who Apollyon is, or I want to know the star from heaven falling from the sky, I'm happy to engage you one-on-one -on -one in coffee, or over coffee, or at your house, having a bagel or whatever it may be, hint, hint. Anyway, but uh, yeah, um, just butter, that's all I need. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just anything, I'll be willing to meet you one-on-one -on -one and deal with the little questions that you may have. Uh, probably in the dialogue, if you ask me specifics, I probably won't address them today. We're looking for the big themes and the big pictures, but as you know, I'm always available for the little details. So let me just give you a few points of way of introduction to help you remind, or to remind you, I should say, of how we've gone about interpreting Revelation so far. First of all, let's remember this is apocalyptic literature. It's using Lord of the Rings or Narnia movie type language through images, symbols, to convey spiritual truths. The events and the scenes are not to be taken literally. Instead, you're to look for the truth behind them that these images and so on are conveying to you. So when you read in verse 9 that there are locusts with scorpion tails like horses prepared for battle, I know many of our fellow Christian brothers and sisters believe those are helicopters and things like that. They're going to assemble one day in Israel. I don't believe that's what he's saying here. He's not saying this at all. In fact, Bruce Metzger actually says it really well. The vividness of John's description is not to provide individual details to be interpreted, but to create a vivid impression on the hearer's imaginations and to evoke thereby a visceral response of fear for the fate that awaits those who have denied Jesus Christ. Right away when you listen to the four chapters that we've just spoken about, and you hear Metzger's comments, doesn't that make a lot of sense in light of what we've just read? Again, so the events and objects here are not to be taken literally detail for detail. That is why I don't want to preach verse by verse. I need to just give you the, the big thematic understanding of these four chapters in general and gain the spiritual truths from them. The second thing we need to remember is the structure of the judgment scenes in Revelation. In the seals, Remember that there was six seals, and then there was an intermission, and then seal seven. Today, the trumpets also have the same format. There's six trumpets, followed by an intermission, and then the seventh uh, trumpet at the end. Now, and each, each seven acts like a Russian doll. The ones that you open up, those, you know, the wooden ones, and inside another Russian doll, and you open up another one. So when we arrive here in chapter eight, verse one, you'll notice we're at the seventh seal. At the seventh seal, when, we, when, when John opens it up, he releases another seven trumpets. And so that's what we're dealing with this morning. And we spoke about this idea of recapitulation. It's a fancy word really saying this. It means recap or a restatement of something previously said. So the judgment scenes are not different scenes per se. What they are is the retelling of the same story from different angles. So if three of us witness a car accident, all of us are going to give different details to that car accident. But we're not talking about three separate car accidents. 
We're talking about one car accident viewed through three different lenses. And by the, the insurance companies appreciate those details because they, they get the true story of what's actually going on. Well, the judgment scenes here are repeated. They're repeated. How do we know? And in the, in the, in the seals, trumpets, and bowls, we have the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming, three times. He doesn't come back three times. We know from the New Testament he comes back once. But we have him returning again. Chapter 11 makes that so clear, hey? I'll read chapter 11, what um, Randy just read. Listen to the words. We give you thanks, O Lord, the Almighty, who, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You've begun to reign. When he comes back and he rules the earth, he reigns. Well, remember in chapter 6, what we saw in the seals, it says, the day of the Lord has come, and judgment was occurring. So we're repeating the same type of thing once again. Finally, remember what the intermissions do. They answer important questions. So in the seals, in the seals in the midst of God's judgment, and the persecution the Christians were facing back then, the, the question was this, who can stand God's judgments when he comes? Who's going to stand in the day of the Lord? And chapter 7 says, God's people will. So, in the trumpets now, we have another set of judgment scenes. Same, same, set, or, or, same story with different nuances. There's a new question, and that is this. What is the role of God's people in this world, in the midst of persecution, when God's judgment comes? What is our, what is our role to be as God's people when he comes? and as judgment unfolds. So that's really imp important questions. The third thing I want to say by way of introduction is this. Remember the Old Testament usage by John as a way of understanding the book. The Old Testament usage is pervasive in, this, in these chapters. I could literally spend two hours with you quoting all the, New Test or the Old Testament references in these four chapters. But I would bore you to death with making you look up this and look up that. It is absolutely loaded with Old Testament usage. And let me just give you a few, though, to help you understand where this all comes from. The idea of judgment coming in the form of trumpets. Remember Joshua chapter 6, when Israel arrives at the edge of Canaan and they take the city of Jericho. The priests circle the city, blowing trumpets to announce judgments coming. The fact that the judgments occurred one-third, one-third, one-third. Janice sounded like a broken record. One-third this, one-third that. That comes from Ezekiel 5, when he pronounced judgment over Israel. He was to take one-third of his hair off of his head and beard and cut it. Or sorry, take it all off and cut it into thirds and disperse it as a form of judgment against Israel. The fact that the plagues are mentioned here is a reminder of Exodus. You notice that a third of the, the waters were turned to blood. You're to think of the, 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 the plague of the Nile in Exodus. How about the sun getting turned dark? One third of the sun. We see that again in the plagues of Exodus. The, this idea of chapter 9, the locusts and the insects and the horses and so on and so forth. That's all Jeremiah 46. The eating of the scroll in chapter 10. That's all Ezekiel chapter 3 before he prophesied to Israel. Chapter 11, the measuring of the temple. 
the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses, that's Ezekiel 40 to 42, Zechariah 2, and Zechariah 4. So again, like, if you want all the cross-references to these Old Testament places, please ask me for them, I'll give them to you. But really, the key story, the key story is for John, and the backdrop to these entire chapters is the Exodus. The Exodus of Israel. And the Egyptians, sorry, the Israelites' deliverance from slavery and the inheritance of the promised land fulfilled in Joshua. Now, does every one of you have a sheet here today, this morning? Did you all receive a sheet? I did this for you to help you, so if you want to write notes. I want to parallel the Exodus story with Revelation chapters 8 through 11 to show you that what John is doing, because if you understand Exodus, you'll understand these four chapters, or these eight, yeah, four chapters today. So I'm actually going to start you in Exodus, and I'm just going to read some things to you from Exodus chapter 1 going forward. So some of you are very familiar with this, and some of you aren't familiar, so I'll do my best to sort of hit the middle so that you, you gain an understanding. But basically, Israel is, um, uh, the nation of Israel exists in terms of a people group, but not as a nation in terms of living where they do today in the Palestine area. But the opening of Exodus starts off with the, the Israelites growing in number. And it probably is someone, I've read commentators uh, guessing somewhere in the neighborhood of two million people. And they live in the land of Goshen in Israel, or sorry, in Egypt. And what's happening is they're multiplying so quickly that Pharaoh, the king of, uh, of Egypt, gets panicky. And he thinks if these people grow anymore, they, if they want to rise up and create revolt and war, we're toast. We can't fight their numbers. And so he puts them into massive slavery. Basically, the, the slavery that we sort of picture today in terms of the, the, uh, the slave trade. And he puts them into horrible slavery and makes their life miserable. And really, the, the, the description of their slavery is defined in verse 13. It says, The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field. So they're in the fields toiling away, they're building cities for Pharaoh, and so on, and life is bitter, as Exodus rightly says. So what happens then is we have God's people persecuted. God's people are being persecuted because of, just because of who they are as, a, as an ethnic, ethnic people. But then they cry out for justice. They cry out for justice, and we pick this up in chapter 2, verse 23. This is what the Israelites say. It says, It came about in the course of time that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He took notice of them. So again, Israelites cry out to God. God hears God remembers. And he knows that he made a promise, you are one day going to inherit Canaan, which is modern day Palestine that we see today. So this is the beginning. Then we have God's promise for deliverance. God's promise of deliverance. And this occurs later on when he appoints Moses as a leader. 
And you know the story. He appears on a burning bush. And he says, I've chosen you to get my people out of, of Egypt. Moses, of course, goes back and forth with a bit of uh, trepidancy there. Because he's not sure he's the right guy. But God assures him, yeah, you're the guy. Now, the promise of deliverance occurs in chapter 3. And this is what he says to Moses. The Lord said, I've surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt. And I have given here to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I'm aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from, to the land that is good and spacious to a land filled with milk and honey. Now, the deliverance, as you know, was not going to come easy and was met with a ton of resistance because Pharaoh was a, was a, was a jerk. There's no other way to say it. There's probably even more words that are appropriate for him than that. But he was a, he was a tyrant. And he was hard-hearted. And over, t I think around ten times, I recorded it just quickly in my quick study, that ten times when Moses says, let my people go, he said, I will not let your people go. So, because he wouldn't let them go on a verbal command, God says, okay, I'm going to bring judgment. If you won't listen to my word and obey my word, I'm going to have to force the hand and bring judgments upon them. And so, he does so. Oh, actually, I should say this. Uh, now that I turn around and look at my notes. Worship, of course, was at the heart of the matter for God in terms of deliverance. For deliverance. Yes, it was to bring them to the land of promise. But listen to the words in 423. These are important words. He says, I want, let my son go, speaking of Israel, so that they can go and serve me. They can serve me. And later in 5.1, he says, so they can prepare a feast to me in the wilderness. So the purpose of deliverance was not only to inherit the land, but it was so that the Israelites could worship freely with no restraints and no persecution on their shoulders. So when the judgments come then, when the, when the judgments come, they come in the form of ten plagues. Now, he does go after Pharaoh specifically for his refusal to let them go. But what's fascinating about it is a verse in 12.12. Listen to, listen to what Moses or God says about the situation in Israel there, or in Egypt. Listen to this. He says, I am going to come and execute uh, this plague against all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgments against them. I'm going to execute these plagues against the gods of Egypt. So not only is he going after Pharaoh, he's going after the demonic forces that influence Pharaoh's decisions. And it's interesting with the ten plagues, because there was a god of the Nile. There was a god for livestock. There was a god for the sun, and so on. So when God was choosing the ten plagues, he was going after the prominent deities of Egypt and saying, who's more powerful when I go and execute this? Because your gods can't stop me. And so it's really, really important. He's going after Pharaoh, but mostly the demonic forces behind Pharaoh's decisions and the idolatry of the land. So then we look at the nature of the judgments then. What happened was he started off slow. He went, he went after like the nature, if you will. He didn't even touch people until later on in the plagues. And the purpose was, I'll start off with the creation, where I'm not impacting humanity too great, but as they would repent and turn, he started to increase the severity and went after greater things that impacted them more. Also, in that, God's people were protected. God's people were protected in that place, in the place. 
really fascinating in 8, I want to read 8.22 to you. Listen to this. He's speaking about the fourth plague. On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord, and I am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Again, we saw that especially in the tenth plague, with the killing of the firstborn. So again, this idea of God's people protected in the midst of judgment. But really important too was the hope of repentance. The hope of repentance. If Pharaoh had just let them go in Moses' first conversation with them, it had been over with. But he didn't. So he forced God's hand to increase the severity of judgments right until the death of the, of the firstborn in the land. But that was not God's original, like uh, God's sort of like... Um, well, that was not God's, like, like necessarily his full intention. If, he would, if the people would have just listened, he could have delivered them right from the start. But he knew who he was up against in Pharaoh, and his heart, his, heart, his heart was hard. So again, we have this hope of repentance, and that repentance is actually seen in chapter 12 and verse 38. This is a really cool verse, and I used to think that only the Israelites got out of Egypt. But actually, some of the Gentiles as well got out. Listen to this comment. In 1238, a mixed multitude also went up with the Israelites, along with flocks and herds, and a very large number of livestock. So some of the Egyptian people, or the other nations living within the land, participated in Passover, and were freed with the Israelites when they went out. So God had a, already in the Exodus story, God had a universal offer of salvation. It was to the Jews, but anyone who wanted to participate in the Jewish way of life could also have been part of God's people. So a really cool thing to think about. And finally then, we see then God's ultimate victory and the fulfillment of His promise. We see in chapter 12, the Passover freeing the Israelites. In chapter 14, the victory at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army defeated. And then we see in Joshua, in the first six chapters especially, the fulfillment of God's promises, the arrival at the promised land, and their defeat of the nations, and enter into what God had given them, their absolute inheritance. The fulfilled inheritance, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now let's look at Revelation now, in light of everything we've just read this morning. Let's look at Revelation God's people persecuted and their cry for justice. You remember in the opening letters to the seven churches, right? Remember what the church of Smyrna was look, looked like, if you were a Christian in Smyrna? It said in verse 8 of chapter 2 that you were in financial poverty because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. The Roman Empire had targeted you because of your commitment to Jesus and your refusal to worship the idols of the land. And so you were persecuted. In verse 10, the church in Smyrna was, were being tested, and he told them prophetically they were going to be imprisoned for a short time because of their faith in Christ. How about in uh, the fifth seal in chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10? Can we just turn there quickly? It says this, that the Lamb broke the fifth seal, and I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had been tamed. 
And they cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So again, we see this idea of them being persecuted. And again, in 8, chapter 4, which we just read this morning, he says, And the smoke of the incense uh, with the prayers of the saints went up before God and out of the angels of the hand. The prayer of the saints here is the same group in chapter 6, those who have been martyred. So we have God's people persecuted, but we also heard the cry for justice. We heard the cry for justice. How long, O Lord? How long before you take notice of us? Well, how about God's promise for deliverance then? His promise for deliverance comes in 8.5. He says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar, and there, and he threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and earthquake. In response to the cries of the people, he says, the time has come, judgment is coming, and he, that's a symbolic, this language is symbolic of him bringing judgment to the world. Again, worship is at the heart of the matter. Heart of the matter. Remember in the seven churches, all the warnings. What were the warnings for? They started off committed in loyalty to Jesus Christ, but because of the pressures of the Roman Empire, they started to swerve and to sway and to become disloyal and were adopting some of the idolatrous practices of the nation. And so there was an issue of compromise, and Jesus says, don't compromise in faith to me. Don't compromise, and he talks about all the rewards and, uh, of the future promises that he would give to those who would persevere and conquer. Again, you saw them messing around with the Nicolaitan teachings, the Jezebel teachings, and some of them were lukewarm and so on. We also see this idea that um, uh, worship was in the heart of the matter in chapter 9 and verse 20. Because here it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and of idols of gold and silver. So again, the issue in the Roman Empire is one of idolatry and one of worship. So then God decides to execute judgment. And he does so in Revelation in the form of plagues. So against who exactly? Well, in 9.20, we, said, we saw it. Those who do not repent of idolatry. And in verse 21, those who do not repent of the works that often follow idolatry. Things like murder and sorcery and immorality and stealing and so on and so forth. Now, of course, he's speaking about the Roman Empire in general. But in chapter 12, next week, we're going to see ultimately the source behind all the idolatry is Satan himself. And we're going to be introduced to Satan in chapter 12 next week. In terms of the nature of the judgments, we see again in Revelation an increase in severity. And it's not partial, or sorry, it is partial, not total. So the increase in severity, if you read the one-third, one-thirds, starts off with creation, just like in the ten plagues, and eventually moves to humanity. Humanity gets touched as there's no change. One-fourth to one-third, if you remember the four horsemen from the seals, the four horsemen hurt one-quarter of the earth. Now the trumpets move to one-third, an increase in severity. But here's what's important. Still partial, not total. It's partial, not total. The total destruction comes in the bold judgments. But right now it's partial, and John wants you to learn a message from that, which we're going to talk about in just a few seconds here. 
So again, we see this not only in the one-third of the earth and the sea and the sun and the moon being affected, but even in chapter 9, verse 10, the scorpions are only to hurt for five months and so on and so forth. So the fractions in Revelation are symbols, not statistics. I'm going to say that again. They're, fra they're symbols, not statistics. How about the idea of being distinct in terms of who the judgments hurt? God's people are protected in chapter 9 and verse 3 and 4. Listen to this. It says, Then out of the smoke of the pit came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of this earth had power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. <coughs> only the men who did not have the seal. Remember in chapter 7, God's people have the seal of Him marked on them. A representation of being loyal to Him. So the people who are hurt here are not God's people. They're actually spared from God's judgment. Just like in Exodus, when God's people were, was a distinction between the land of Goshen and the land of Egypt. How about in the purpose? The purpose behind it, the hope of repentance. Again, I love 9, 20, and 21. He says, even when they had these plagues come upon them, he says, they did not repent of their works. What that implies then is that they did not repent as God was saying they should have. <laughs> they should have. In other words, these judgments should have produced repentance, but even in those judgments, they would not. Doesn't that sound like Pharaoh again? He should have repented after watching his, na his, his nation just getting absolutely hammered by the plagues and watching his people in misery. But as a ruler, he was a tyrant and didn't. He just basically flipped the bird to God and said, I will have nothing to do with you. And these people in the Roman Empire here and that, are, that are shown as not repenting is powerful because they should be turning to God in these judgments, and they're not. They're hard-hearted, just like Pharaoh. But what I love here in this whole thing is that this fraction is also a symbol of God's mercy. He's not bringing total destruction right now. He's actually only bringing partial, which means he's leaving room for people to learn from the tragic events they're facing and hopefully turn. It's an emphasis on God's patience, His mercy. And that salvation is something He'll offer right up to the dying breaths. But like everything in life, it's our stubborn hearts and our hard hearts that refuse to bend to the will of God. One more piece on these plagues before we move on. It's really fascinating in chapter 10 and verse 11. Or actually, back up even more in chapter well, 10, 9 through 11. John is told there to eat a book, to eat a scroll, that is described as being sweet as honey, but also bitter. And then he's told after eating this book, which represents God's word, to prophesy and declare its contents. What's important about this is John is told to prophesy in that day. Is he to prophesy in that day? Look at verse 11. He says, And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So this was not to be a prophetic message, not just for the future, but John's present day. Now why that's important is you need to listen to 22 and verse 18. And 22 and verse 18, listen to how the book ends. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, 
If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. He has to be starting in that century, not talking about us today 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years later. He's saying if anyone who reads this from this day forward adds to this, God will add to them these plagues. What that tells you and tells you then that these judgments are not to be understood again as necessarily literal, but metaphorical. To say that God is more theological, that judge, God's judgment does come on people who, doesn't, who don't obey these words written in this book. Again, this is very powerful. Anyone who reads this can be affected. Therefore, it's not just for a future timeline. God, uh, Gordon Fee says it this way, this vision is intended to be more theological than chronological in purpose. How about then looking at God's ultimate victory and fulfillment of his promises in relation to the Exodus story? Well, that's chapter 11. Chapter 11. I love it. In verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We give thanks to you, O Lord, because um, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And then I love 19, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the Ark of His Covenant appeared in His temple, and there were flashes of lightning. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, represents God's presence. What we have here is the culmination of people standing victorious in Jesus Christ. Canaan was the ultimate picture of God's victory and the promise of inheritance. Chapter 11, heaven and the, being in the presence of God as God's ultimate victory and the fulfillment of his promise. The stories are absolutely parallel through the entire thing. But there's one more piece to the story. And that is God's people in being a witness. Let's go back to Exodus for a second. In chapter 19 of Exodus, and then Isaiah 43 later on, the Lord makes this declaration. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Later on in Isaiah 43, 10, it says, You, Israel, are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. The intention for Israel being chosen by God was not to exclude the rest of the world and say, look at the God we serve and everyone else take a hike. God was basically doing this. I'm going to start with you little group of people to do a work in you and sanctify you so that once I mature you and you reflect my image properly, we will go after the world and try to save them as well. But I need to start off with a little band of people to go after the entire world. And we get a glimpse of that in the Passover, right? The, the mixed multitude were allowed to join Israel right away. And so Israel, sadly, they failed. Not only in the wilderness, which took them 40 years to get to the Promised Land, they failed when they got into the land. And so God went to Plan B, which is to start going after the Gentiles, and hopefully, and then we know from what we studied in Romans 11 and so on, that Israel will one day become a safe nation again. 
But again, Israel was to be a witness right off the bat and failed. There were a few exceptions, of course, but generally speaking, and that's why they were exiled from the land twice by Assyria and Babylon for their disobedience. Well, how about to us? Are we called to be a witness? According to Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 14, we are. We are. Daryl Johnson in his commentary said this, every commentator I know says chapter 11 is the most difficult text to interpret. Just so you know, he's a uh, professor at Regent College, so he's not, a, he's not a simpleton. He's a professor and he says, every commentator I know says that chapter 11 is the most difficult revelation to interpret. And so we read it out loud, but I'm gonna give it to you just in my really closed notes version. And again, if you want specific details, I'll, we can talk about it in co over coffee. But really, we have to remember once again what the intermissions accomplished. Intermission number one in the seals was to answer the question, who can stand? Who can stand in the midst of God's judgment? And the answer was God's people. The intermission in chapter 10 between the trumpets and chapter 11 in the first half of it answers the question, what are God's people to do in the midst of persecution in this world, knowing that God is a judge? What are we to do? And the answer is witness. We're to be a witness. And so in chapter 11, beginning at the, at the very start, we see this picture of um, John measuring the temple of God. And he's basically um, finding out, uh, he's doing this and says that there's those who are worshiping within it. Now this idea of the temple is of course metaphorical. How do we know that? The Jerusalem temple was sacked in AD 70 by the Romans. So there's no literal temple in Jerusalem to even measure, even in a vision, like it's gone. Number two, we know in Revelation 21, he says there is no temple in heaven. So again, he's, he's, he's trying to make you think metaphorically. And what is he really saying here? It's, the temple is John's symbolic way of identifying who God's people are. It's identifying metaphorically who God's people are. And this makes sense in the New Testament. It's pervasive, talking about you and I being the temple of God. Think of that. 1 Corinthians 3.16 do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? So it's metaphorical to say it's God's people. In opposition to that, he talks about those who are outside the temple. Outside in the outer courts, it says here in verse 3. Or verse 2, we should say. Again, it represents people who are not God's people that stand outside of God's covenant. Now, what we're told to do then with this distinction between the two groups, is witness. And we pick this up in verse 4. He says, these are the two, actually I'll start in verse 3, and I will grant authority to have my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. We've already learned what the lampstands represent in, Gen in Revelation. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 20, it says the lampstands are the churches. The lampstands are the churches. And now he says, I've granted authority to my two witnesses, the lampstands. 
Two in the Bible is the number of witness. Remember Deuteronomy 17? <laughs> you can't take anything to court and charge anyone appropriately unless there's two witnesses. First Timothy 5, you can't bring an accusation against an elder unless there's two witnesses. So the lamp stands of the church, the number of two is the number of witness. And so the two is just significant of, of that. And so he's saying this, in the midst of this world, you are to go out, just like Israel was, a witness to the world. But here's the problem, or the reality. It's a world in opposition to Jesus Christ. This becomes clear in verse 7 through, through uh, 10, where we see a persecution, even to the point of death in this symbolic language. But then here's the beautiful thing. In verses 11 through uh, 14, we see the resurrection. We see a resurrection. Even if you're martyred for your faith, even if you are, God will breathe life into you. And at the second coming, you will receive your glorified body. And that's why chapter or the whole thing ends with the seventh trumpet, a picture of the kingdom of God, where you'll end, eventually end up, even if that becomes the reality of life. So again, the final trumpet is a picture of glory and vindication and victory. You know, this stuff in here is usually preached like a sci-fi movie. And I know that um, it's, it's very pervasive in our, in our Western world to, to approach it that way. And again, even if you still approach it that way and reject everything I've said this morning, you're still welcome here. Revelation is a very difficult book, and uh, you're welcome to hold differences of opinion. The most important thing is how we love God and love others, in terms of how we live that out. But I will say this, understanding it this way changes a lot for me personally. We know we live in a troubled world right now. You can't turn on you know, your, your, any news station or anything without realizing that. You can't read the papers without knowing that. You can't walk the streets without knowing that. Here's why the importance of witness is, is, is um, I think, mentioned here. People often ask the question, you know, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Why can't we get it right? Well, the biblical answer is, you're what's wrong with the world. I'm what's wrong with the world. You and I are what's wrong with the world. We can't change the world and bring the peace and harmony that the people want because our hearts need changed first. And in Jeremiah it says, the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? In Proverbs 4 and verse 23, it talks about guard your heart, because out of it flows the way you live your life. When Jesus went after the Pharisees and different people, he said the problem is not with what you eat and goes in your body, it's what comes out of your mouth because of what's in your heart. The heart's the issue. The reason why the world's in a mess is because our hearts are a mess and we need a heart transplant. And according to the Gospel of the, of the New Testament, Jesus Christ died for our sin. He died for our sin so that He'd give us a new heart and through the power of His Holy Spirit live for Him and follow and through His commands change the world around us. We're to witness of His love, of His grace, the way he can change us. People who embrace Jesus Christ can change the world. 
We can change the world, but we need a heart transplant first. And so again, looking at Revelation through the picture of Exodus, looking at the picture of Revelation through this whole story is really powerful for understanding what Jesus Christ is truly going after in these chapters. So what can we learn? I'll give you four quick lessons. Number one, the series of judgments in Revelation are not written to provide a linear timeline of future events before Christ's return. I know I might stand in opposition to many of my contemporaries, but this is a thing of, he's using the Old Testament and, the, and their sequence of judgments to do recapitulation, restating the same theme in three different ways. In chapter 11, he says, the kingdom has come and you are reigning. There's 22 chapters in Revelation, we're only halfway through, and Jesus has declared it's already reigning. It can't be a timeline because there's a lot of things that happen after this and Christ is already there. It's, it, he's just restating the same thing over and over with different nuances. Number two, as believers are cries to God for justice, do not go unnoticed. And he will carry out his, his judgments on those who refuse to accept his way both now and in the future. Exodus story, they cry out to God, he listens. In the Revelation story, the martyrs cry out to God and people on earth are crying out. And he says, I will bring judgment. The hard thing for us is we don't know always when he does it, how he's going to do it, and if it's going to be the timing we desire. But we have a faithful God and we can trust in his judgment and his timing for bringing it about. The third lesson is that when God judges sin, his purpose is not only to execute justice, but with the hope of producing repentance. His goal is to produce repentance in people through the judgment, not to just smite them. He started off in the seals of one-quarter judgments. Then he moves to one-third and not total destruction in the trumpets. And then only in the bowls does he say, okay, now I've had enough and I'm moving to the final phase. But he's giving lots of time. That's the story, isn't it, of, of Noah? He said to Noah, I'm going to flood the world. He says, nevertheless, I'll give up the, the, the world 120 years before I, I bring judgment on them. And it says in the New Testament, Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He says, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. He sends Jonah to preach, to give them a chance to repent. There's always a time, even that God gives us like sort of moment of silence for people to ponder. Our problem, again, too, is that when we suffer, we often don't turn to the Lord in the midst of it. We continue to endure it and come up with other ways of coping with it. But again, this should bring comfort to us, especially knowing for those who are under great persecution that God hears the cries of his people. And another lesson here. Despite persecution, the church of God is to be a continuous witness in this world and the hopes that people will come to repentance. The message of Revelation is very clear. You, will, you and I can potentially suffer at the hands of men, but when God comes to judge, we will be protected and rescued. But again, so how do we survive? What's the intermission teaches under the trumpets? We are to witness in this world and continue to testify about him.